0: How are we doing, Kenwood? It's good to be with you, Pastor David, and some from this church on another continent this morning, uh, tracing the journeys of Paul. Uh, so I'm up. There's a lot in this passage, a lot going on, a lot to say. We're jumping in. Here we go. As a church, we're continuing to pursue the call of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And here at Kenwood, we understand a disciple to be a committed follower of Jesus who learns to obey him over time and joyfully shares him with others. I wonder, does that definition describe you this morning? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? Are you learning to obey him over time? Are you joyfully sharing him with others? If you are doing those things, then you're engaging, whether you know it or not, in what is called disciple making. Disciple making is entering into a relationship to intentionally help others follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and join the mission of Jesus. So our summer sermon series is aiming to help us take the next step in disciple making for every single one of us, whatever that next step might be. Our summer series is called Passing the Baton. Uh, in this series, we're thinking of the Christian life as a relay race instead of a solo race. The only way to win a relay race uh, is for every member on the team to run according to the rules and run their very best race. We're studying the books of Titus and First and Second Timothy. We're studying these books uh, to discover how the early church made disciples who went on to make more disciples. These books are written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They are written to men he knows, he loves, and he has invested in. They are personal letters with instruction and encouragement for ministry. Last week on our men's retreat, our Friday night speaker said, We are needy and needed. We are needy and needed. I love that simple sentence. Uh, it's great reasoning for uh, a disciple-making ministry. It summarizes so clearly and so efficiently what I long for our church to realize and embrace. All of us are needy and all of us are needed. We're moving quickly this morning, so here's point number one from our passage. Because we are needy and needed, Disciple-making is an everybody effort. Disciple-making is an everybody effort. Making disciples who make disciples is not the work of a few, it's the work of many. We could be tempted to think that disciple-making is the trained professional's job, that is the pastor's job, that is my job. But God's word makes it clear that this is not the case. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And here in this letter to Titus, we see Paul giving the disciple-making task to Titus, who is in turn supposed to give it to older men and older women, who are in turn supposed to give it to younger men and younger women. Even bond servants are included in this mission. Both genders and all ages are included in the task of making the disciples. Even uh, the people who are essentially on the outside, who are on the margins of society, are included in this disciple-making mission. Disciple-making is an everybody effort. No one is left out. Everyone is engaged in the work. Now, Paul and Titus had a special relationship. We learned last week that it was a father-son type relationship, even though there wasn't a biological connection. Paul now calls on Titus to make sure the kind of relationship that they have is replicated throughout the church. Titus, a youngish pastor is supposed to speak and teach what accords with sound doctrine and he's supposed to target uh, a portion of his speaking and a portion of his teaching towards older men and older women here's why older men and older women are a treasure in the church Older men and older women have a disciple-making role that is critical to passing on the faith, adorning it, displaying it, and proclaiming it. Now, in my study this week, I did notice that commentators struggled to agree on what classifies as old in Paul and Titus' day. <laughs> we struggle with that as well, don't we? Some of us don't want to think of ourselves as older or old. We live in a culture that celebrates youth. But the Bible says that age is a good thing. Proverbs 16.31 says gray hair is a crown of glory. Some of you are full of glory this morning. (laughs) If you are in the older category the Scripture calls you to model and teach the ways of God to younger men and younger women. If you're in the younger category, the Scripture calls you to observe and learn from those older than you. But many of you in this young category are probably still older than others, and you could be involved in ministry to college students, youth, or children. If you think you're right in the middle of old and young, then my counsel to you is to just do both. Find someone older than you to learn from and find someone younger than you to pour into. Disciple-making is an everybody effort. We're all called to it. This is not the task of the pastor or just a few super saints alone. It's the task for every single one of us Here at Kenwood, we're trying to emphasize what we're calling one-to-one relationships that meet together frequently. At most, we'd encourage what we call a micro group. That would be three to four people max. Growth seems to happen in a quicker and deeper way in these kinds of relationships. Many of the adult baptisms we've seen recently have come through the loving and sustained influence of one or two people investing in another person. Disciple-making is an everybody effort. And when a person gets engaged in a disciple-making relationship, particularly as the one discipling another, they're called to two things. In verses 7 through 8, Paul tells Titus, I want you to be a model of integrity, set a good example in every way possible, and secondly, speak and teach in a sound and healthy way. As we keep exploring this passage, we'll expand on that. But for now, I want you to see that we're all called to relationally pour into others. And if you're wondering, what am I supposed to do in that relationship? It's really fairly simple. You open yourself up as a model and as a learner, and you share how Scripture and Jesus helps you live. As a discipler, you'll probably still learn from the one you're discipling, and that's a good thing. When we talk about disciple-making relationships at Kenwood, we're talking about consistently meeting to encourage one another to become like Jesus which brings us to our next point, point number two. The goal of disciple-making is godliness. The goal of disciple-making is godliness. In our information age, we could be tempted to think that knowledge alone is the goal. I just need to learn more information. I just need to learn more Bible. Knowledge is certainly vital. And there's a knowledge that accords with godliness, as Titus 1.1 says. There's a transformation that comes as our minds are renewed, Romans 12, 2. But the goal of disciple-making is more than Bible facts. The goal is godly living. That's what Titus 2, 1 through 10 is speaking of. Now, as you heard those verses read a few minutes ago, I'm willing to bet, I'm not a betting guy, but I'm willing to bet that some of you winced a time or two. Titus 2, 1 through 10 says some things that could sound out of touch with our modern Western world. So let's dig into these verses and see what they have for us. Now, I do need you to stick with me here because six different people or people groups are addressed in just 10 verses. It's like rapid fire, kind of all over the place. Have you ever had a taco that was stuffed and just overflowing with a lot of ingredients? That's kind of what Titus 2, 1 through 10 is. So focus with me so that we don't end up with a mess all over the place, okay? Here are the people that are addressed in these verses. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, and bond servants. I want to start by pointing out that while each group is given specific instruction the instruction given to them is not necessarily limited to them. For example, older women are explicitly told to avoid drunkenness in verse 3. Don't be slaves to much wine. That isn't explicitly stated to the other groups. But it would be incorrect to say, well, older women can't get drunk, but everybody else can get sloshed whenever they want to. That's a misreading of this passage. Warnings against drunkenness are found throughout Scripture and they're applied to all people. But Paul uh, here specifically and explicitly addresses older women. So all of Kenwood, we should not be drunk with wine. Older women, make sure this is true of you as well. As you look at these instructions, you may notice repeating themes as well. Notice self-control is repeated several times. Pastor Justin did a great job helping us think about that this morning. In verse 2, older men are called to be self controlled. Younger women are told to be self controlled in verses 4 through 5. And younger men are called to self control in verse 6. Self control is a fruit of salvation. And in verse 12, we're in fact all called to self control. The goal of disciple making is. Godliness, Self-control is a godly virtue. It's a fruit of grace in our life. As Christians, this is a virtue that should be increasing in our life as we learn to obey Jesus over time. How are you doing in this area? Are you exercising self-control in every area of your life? Is that growing in your life? Friends, grace does not give us permission to live however we want. Grace does not mean that what, uh, what, that what we do does not matter. We could be tempted to think that grace just gives us a pass to live however we want because God will just forgive us whenever we need it. But that is not what grace is for. Grace brings forth new desires and fruit like self-control. Notice also that uh, both older men and older women are to possess and model dignity and reverence. There's a soundness to their life, especially as it relates to faith, love, and endurance. Gossip and slander have no place in a solid Christian's life. Disciple-making is an everybody effort. Older people are essential to that task. And the goal of disciple-making is that everyone becomes more godly. Makes sense, right? But what about some of those other parts of verses 1 through 10? What about that group called bond servants? Some of your translations may have the word slave. Verses 9 through 10 can sound jarring. In Paul's day, bondservants formed about one-third of the population. So we're talking about a massive group of people. Bondservant or bond service was a form of slavery. But in the Greco-Roman world, this status was not like the slavery we had in our own country just uh, over 150 years ago. Slavery in America was wicked. It was horrible. It was utterly shameful. It was sinful. It's a shameful part of our story as a nation and an immensely shameful part of the American church's story. But this kind of slavery that Paul is addressing was different. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm trying to explain it. It wasn't freedom as we think of it now. But this status was widespread, it was very ingrained in society, and it was usually much more humane than what we think of in our own country's history. A bond servant in the Greco-Roman world could be a cook, a cleaner or a worker in the field. They could also be a tutor, a physician, a nurse. Or a manager of an entire estate. They ran shops, they sailed ships, they managed money. Bond servants and free people dressed the same. You often had no idea which was which by appearance alone. And there was great diversity in terms of race, religion, and culture. A wide range of people from a wide variety of backgrounds encompassed the group of people called bondservants. Again, some English Bibles do translate the word as slave. To be a bondservant or a slave was very often connected to economic realities. In fact, you could actually become a bondservant by choice. And for many people, that resulted in a much easier and secure life as a result. There was even a process in Roman law that could start in slavery and end in Roman citizenship. Now, there were other ways to become a bondservant as well, to include war, abandonment as a child, or by being born into a family with this status. Those are difficult circumstances, no doubt, and I'm sure there were situations where bondservants were treated very poorly. But broadly speaking... It was often tied to economic realities, and it actually had a humaneness to it. This is not a perfect example, but it gets us in the ballpark when we think about the economic realities uh, connected to being a bond servant in the Greco-Roman world. Think about how today some doctors, some lawyers come out of school with massive debt. And they agree to work in a rural hospital or in a law firm that will pay off that debt after a certain number of years of service. Think about how some teachers will get free schooling, but then they will be sent by the state to a certain district to pay off their debt. Those kinds of situations in our own day get us closer to the group of people uh, Paul is telling Titus to minister to here. It's not a perfect analogy. Hopefully, it's a little bit helpful. But to picture what existed in our own country 150 years ago and decide that Scripture approved of that is incorrect. In fact, the book of Philemon serves as an example of Paul arguing against the practice of slavery in his day. The Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Paul did apply gospel truths to slavery and said some revolutionary things. Listen to Galatians 3, 28 to 29. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In those two verses of gospel application, we learn that in the kingdom of God, there is no hierarchy. There are no dividing lines. In Christ, we're all equal in position. We're all from the same family line, the line of Abraham. There is something incredible here, and it's this. Christianity is for all people those in high positions, as well as those in the lowest. And the main point here is that no matter who you are or what your position or status in society is, make godliness your goal. Be a godly CEO that treats others very well. Be a godly minimum wage worker. Don't steal. Don't talk back. Adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in how you live and work. Are you about to be a lowly freshman in high school? Be the godliest freshman you can be. Are you at the top of your school this coming year? A ruling, reigning fifth grader, eighth grader, or twelfth grader? Don't be a jerk in that position. Be godly. The goal of disciple-making is godliness. Well, there's at least one more hot-button issue in this passage, and that's what is said to young women. In verses 4 through 5, Paul tells Titus to make sure the older women help the younger women learn how to love their husbands and children, work at home, and be submissive to their own husbands. A few opening comments. These verses do not mean the Bible requires marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 says that to be single is a good thing. Marriage can be a good thing. It can also be really hard. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.40 that in his judgment, you can be happier as a single person. And this is surely why Paul tells Titus to make sure the older women help the younger women learn how to love their husbands and children. It's harder than expected, amen? Husbands like me can be difficult to love sometimes. And when two sinners say, I do, you double the trouble. And then if you have babies, you discover that sinfulness abounds, amen? Rest assured, if any of you young couples looked at your spouse this week and said, we've created a little monster in this child, you're not the first couple to discover that sin is truly inherited. Now, many women do have maternal instincts that kick in when they have children. And yes, many women do have a genuine uh, commitment and affection to their husbands. But what about those times when you don't? Because those, ha- those times happen, right? That's where an older woman can be particularly helpful. Young women who are married, be encouraged. Scripture doesn't tell you to just grin and bear it and try and figure it out on your own. Scripture encourages you to seek the wisdom of an older, wiser, and more experienced woman. And older women, your wisdom and experience isn't something for you to keep to yourself. It's something to share. The younger women need it, as do the younger men need it from the older men. I'll give you an example. My wife's grandparents were married for 69 years. And Carol's grandmother... Uh, Told us that we would be newlyweds for the first 25 years. (laughs) She said, Listen, it's going to take you that long to figure it out. Carol and I celebrate 24 years in just a few weeks, which means we're about to enter our last year of newlywed learning. So whenever my wife is feeling challenged to love me because I'm difficult, I remind her, we're still in the newlywed stage. (laughs) Your grandmother said so. The goal of disciple-making is godliness. And virtues like patience and endurance can be imparted from an older Christian to a younger Christian. Older people, the younger people need you. Okay, what about this work from home thing or work at home thing and this submission thing? Well, even though COVID did alter our concept of working at home a little, when we hear the work at home line, we hear it through Western ears on the other side of the industrial revolution. But I want you to remember that life hasn't always been the way that we know it now. There was a day when your home was also your business. If your family had fields, the woman played a role in the harvest, production, and sales of the crop. She was a wife, a mom, and a businesswoman. If the man was a carpenter, the woman no doubt had a role in marketing and sales of what her husband was making, perhaps even supply chain. The word in Titus 2.5 for working at home, that, that word and its construction is unusual. English translations range from busy at home to homemakers to workers at home to managers of the household. That last translation could be understood as having extensive responsibility. To be sure, what scripture is calling for here is nowhere near a Taliban society. Titus 2.5 is not aimed at oppressing women, but it does provide some focus. And here's a fact of life. If you have a family, you get one shot at raising those kids. Give parenting the time and attention it needs. A household needs management, which requires time and intentionality. Now, how this has worked out in 2023 is going to look different from family to family. A single mom will face particular realities she cannot avoid. A married woman uh, who's married to a man with a modest income may have no choice but to work outside the home. This is the case in my home. When the kids were little, Carol wanted to be home, and we made all the sacrifices necessary for that, and we don't regret it at all. But now, we're in a different life stage. Two kids in college, about to have four kids on the car insurance. I need help. (laughs) Her income is helpful, and I'm thankful for it. She works outside the home as a high school teacher, Her hand and her heart is still very engaged in our home as well. Time, her time is tighter. So because of that, I do help with all kinds of household chores. This man does laundry. This man cooks. This man cleaned a toilet last night. All right? It's a way for me. It's a way for me to love her as she helps me. She's still a better cook. Titus 2, five does not mean a woman is sentenced to the kitchen. In Acts 16, we read of Lydia. She was a seller of purple cloth, which was expensive. She was a wealthy businesswoman. And after she came to faith, she led her entire household to faith. When Lydia came to faith, in addition to selling purple cloth, Lydia started working on making disciples in her home. That has to be a priority for anyone managing their home has to be a priority for parents. As far as submission goes, this word means to fit into an order rather than obstruct or resist the order. There's an org chart wherever you go that is supposed to clarify roles and responsibility. In this passage, bond servants are supposed to submit to their masters. Next week, we'll see in chapter 3 that we're supposed to submit to our leaders. Every area of life requires order, and almost everyone has someone that they submit to. In God's wisdom, in marriage, a man is said to be the head. In marriage, men and women are clearly equal in value Worth and status before God, but the Lord says the man has a specific responsibility. Yes, many men majorly misunderstand what this means in a marriage. No, it does not mean a wife has no voice or power. Hardly a decision is made in our home without a conversation between Carol and I. My wife's perspective is invaluable and often heated. Sometimes she's right. A lot of times she's right. And as my helper, she helps me see things from another angle. So much could be said here. Briefly, I want you to notice 2.5 says very clear, clearly, submissive to their own husbands, not men in general. This verse does not mean a woman can't have a higher position of authority in the workplace. This verse is limited to marriage only. Comprehensive biblical teaching makes it clear that submitting to your husband never means you have to violate God's word. It never means you should do anything to compromise your relationship with Jesus. You should never be asked to sin. You should never violate your conscience. You should never compromise safety and security for yourself or your children. You should never endure abuse. You should never turn a blind eye to your husband's sin. Husband's. Ephesians 5 tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is, he sacrificed and died. In premarital counseling, I often take guys to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and I ask them to circle the word lead every time they see it. And they discover that the word isn't there. And they look back at me and they say, I don't see it. And then I say, well, look for the word love. And the word love occurs at least six times, and in every case, it's being called for from the husband. So then I say, you need to focus on loving her well in every aspect of your life together. Let her figure out what submission means in your marriage. You figure out how to love her like Jesus loved us. And that's going to take you a lot of time. You're going to be plenty busy and on your knees trying to learn how to love like Jesus. That is a high calling. We said a lot about Titus 2, 1 through 10. Hopefully I didn't lose you. I want to remind you that the two main points so far have been disciple making is an everybody effort. And disciple-making's goal is godliness. We've been trying to flesh that out practically, according to Titus 2, but remember that we are needy and needed. This is a community pursuit. Christianity 101 involves joining a body of Christ and being an active part of the community. We're not supposed to be loners. We're not called to independence and a self-guided life. We're called to interdependence, community, and discipleship. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Disciple-making is empowered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Disciple-making is empowered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. We could be tempted to think that Titus 2, 1 through 10 is within ourselves if we'll just pull our bootstraps up and and get to work. This Titus 2 call uh, is within us. But Titus 2, 11 through 15 destroys that thinking. that's very good news. For the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, and it's appeared in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word all means all types, both men and women, children and adults, rich and poor. The color of your skin does not matter. Your country of origin does not matter. If you're an immigrant or a slave, the grace of God is offered to you. And the appearing of grace in the person and work of Jesus trains us to renounce and walk away from ungodliness and worldly passions. Our desires, our goal becomes godliness when we experience grace. And we grow in that over time. Grace enables us and empowers us to live a self-controlled life, an upright life, a godly life right now in this present age, verse 12 it is achievable but not in yourself you need jesus working in and through you the ground for this titus 2 disciple making is jesus christ who gave himself up to redeem us from lawlessness and who purifies us for himself he claims us He pulls us close, and he transforms us in such a way that we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're excited, we're eager for good works, verse 14. You see, the kind of living we are called to in Titus 2 is not possible in ourselves. We need help. We need Jesus to cover our failures and enable us to live a new and different life. And Jesus does all that and more in living the life we could not live on our own and paying for every single one of our failings on the cross. But grace is not just a past event or a a person that once walked the earth. Verse, Verse 13 says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which means the work of grace isn't finished Because Jesus wasn't just a religious figure in the past. He is God in the flesh and he's alive and he's interceding on our behalf even now. We're waiting for more. There's more to come and it's coming in Jesus who will appear again. And that appearing will be full of glory. There will be no doubt. There will be no scoffing. It will be clear, and it will be captivating for every single person who has believed. We long for his return. We long to be more like him. And while we wait, we engage in a community effort to make sure that we're all growing in godliness. We have our calling before us today, Kenwood. Let's say yes to it and see how God uses our lives to adorn his word and his ways. We pray for me? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. We want to say yes to it. By your spirit, enable us to say yes to it and help us to spur one another on love and good deeds, Lord, I pray for those in the older category this morning. I pray that you would impress upon them the calling to invest personally in another younger person. Lord, I pray that the those who are younger in this room would learn from, receive, be open to those who've been there and done that and I pray that you'd help them to see those that are still younger than them and invest in them. Lord, help us to make Titus 2 a reality at Kenwood. We pray this in your name. Amen.